Some of you probably know this, that the effect started out as a recovery community, and uh, we still have a very strong presence in recovery and work in recovery. And there's a saying in recovery. It says, you know, if you want to recover, there's only one thing you need to do. <laughs> and that one thing, or one thing you need to change. I, I said that. See, I already messed up the setup. <laughs> I hate when that happens. In recovery, there's only one thing you need to change, and that one thing is everything, right? And it's, it's a joke, and it's funny, but it's also true. And the truth of the matter is, is that if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to enter what he calls kingdom, if you want to be able to apprehend the Father the way that Jesus does, to find the freedom that he's talking about, because that's the goal of everything he's talking about. You know, follow my ways and you will find the truth. And the truth will make you free from all those obsessions and compulsions and fears and everything that the small self, that, that the false self of Thomas Merton is heir to. So if you really want to follow Jesus, it's really the same journey. Jesus and Paul call it transformation instead of recovery. But it's the same journey, and it has the same requirement. If you want to follow Jesus, there's only one thing you need to change, and that is everything. Everything needs to change. But I want to qualify that statement a little bit, because when I call that a requirement, it's a requirement that if you want to follow Jesus, really follow him, you're going to need to change everything. It's not a requirement like, remember the, the height requirement that you had to have if you were going to get on a roller coaster at Disneyland, you had, if you're not this tall, you cannot get on this ride. It's not like that. It's not that kind of requirement. Because nothing that God has or does is ever conditional. Nothing that God has is ever withheld. So it's not like this ride will be withheld from you if you don't meet this requirement. This journey will be withheld from you. I'm thinking it's more like a bungee jump. You know, the bridge is there. The bungee is there. You can go anytime you want to. What's holding you back? How many of you would ever go on a bungee jump? See? This, this doesn't... You got, got one guy would go on a bungee jump. Oh, I got a couple more back there. Okay. Never been on a... I went skydiving, but not bungee jumping. Bungee jumping doesn't call for me to me for some reason. But what hell holds you back from a bungee jump? Is it the fear? Is it the... Is, is, what is it? You know? It's there. It's available to you. But for some reason, you're not availing yourself of it. Or maybe, for us more sedentary people, maybe it's like someone gives you a great book that they say contains all the secrets of the universe. But it's in Greek or Spanish or German or anything that you don't speak. It's there. It's available for you. It's waiting for you. But you're going to have to learn the language before you can read it. It's not being withheld. It's right there. The bungee, it's right there. We have to start changing the way that we look at this idea of requirement. Yes, there is a requirement, but it's not that we have to pass a bar before God gives us something. The something is already there. It's already within. It's, we're swimming in it. But we won't see it. We won't be able to conceive of it until things start to change. And Jesus is working so hard in the Gospels to get this across his way, his kingdom, his sense of father is so different than what the world presents, what our small self conceives of, how it operates, how it works, how it 
deals and maneuvers in life that we simply won't see, we simply won't hear, and more importantly, we won't value Jesus' kingdom. We won't value Jesus' way until everything in us changes so that we're literally looking at the world and looking at life in a completely different way, from a completely different point of view, if you want to see it that way. Now, Jesus calls this being born again. And that's a pretty good image, this idea of a complete new beginning, complete fresh start, complete new eyes, if you want to take a look at it that way. Everything changes if you are born again. And Jesus keeps hammering this point. If you start to think of the red letters in the Gospels, Jesus' actual sayings and words, from this point of view, you're going to see him pounding this point over and over and over again. When he tells a rich young man to sell everything that he has, give it away, and then come follow, what's he talking about? He's talking about complete renewal, complete transformation. He's talking about letting go of everything that you have been clinging on to for support, being born again. Same idea. One of his favorite sayings is, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. Same idea that he's trying to get across here. He says, to, if you really want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross, pick up your cross daily and follow after. And what's the cross? But the symbol of Paul's old man dying, letting go of everything that you're carrying around, nailing it to the tree, and then moving on in a new space. Same idea. He says, if you love your father and your mother more than you love me, then you're not fit to follow. If you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of following. And then he puts it in the negative, and he says, unless you hate your father and mother and sister and brother and children and even your own life, you can't follow me. He puts it in the positive, he puts it in the negative. Now, hate in Aramaic means to prefer less in this particular context. So basically, he's saying the same thing twice, just in two different ways. If you prefer anything else more than you prefer this, if anything else is left that you are clinging to, you're not going to be able to go where I am going, and you're not going to be able to follow. He is making this as absolutely blunt, as shocking as it can possibly be. And as we pointed out before, in that culture, family was everything. One of the most revered commandments was to honor your father and mother. And he's saying, you've got to put them second tier over this. Them's fighting words in Jewish culture. And so he is trying so hard to just get this point across. Because without this, without at least the conception that everything has to change, that we have to let go of everything we're clinging to, nothing follows. Take a look at Luke 9, starting at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Isn't that the perfect line? Isn't like that the line in the movie just before everything collapses? You know, famous last words, bam, everything's going to hit. I will follow you wherever you go. Peter saying, I will never ever deny you. Famous last words. And Jesus says to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And typically we take this literally, that Jesus was itinerant, that he didn't have a home. But if you really read the Gospels carefully, Jesus had a home. It was in Capernaum. It was his place. Eventually his whole family moved to it. 
when he came back from the wilderness, reestablished himself, his headquarters, and his place of residence at Capernaum. But he makes this statement. He's talking spiritually here. He's saying, when you go out on this way, when you get out on this limb, there are going to be so few people who are going to find fellowship with you. You are going to be irritating everybody that you ever knew. Jesus' own family wanted him committed, basically. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. And he upset everyone around him. He, accept, he, he upset the, the, the religious establishment of the Jews. He upset the political establishment of the Romans. And he said, hey, you think you're going to have peace if you follow this way? Think again. I didn't come to bring peace, understood differently from shalom, but this as tranquility and calm. I didn't come to bring you that. There's a sword here embedded in, implied by, you going out so far against the norm, against the convention, when everything changes, you're going to find yourself without a place to just rest. The foxes have their holes, or the birds of the air have their... Now, are you willing to do that? You say you're going to follow me wherever you go. Are you really willing to make that kind of sacrifice, to let those things go? And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Seems like a real reasonable request, wouldn't you think? But Jesus says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, we do have to understand that in that culture, burying my father usually meant living with your parents until they died. That's typically what it meant because you were supposed to care for your mother and father. There's many of us that are finding ourselves in that same position these days, aren't we? Kind of sandwiched between generations. But even so, Jesus is making a huge point here. Once again, not that you have to leave your family in order to take this journey, but there's an internal change that has to take place. And if you are still clinging to family as a source of your, of your survival, the source of your sustenance, the source of your connection then that's going to be the limit. That's your glass ceiling as far as you can go. And he's trying to break that glass ceiling for all of us. He's trying to allow us to be able to move through and find even deeper relationships with the people that are closest with us. And another also says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. (laughs) Now that seems like, how could he possibly have a problem with that? And what does he say? No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus couldn't be any clearer here if you were thinking spiritually, if you're thinking along these lines. If you take this literally, as many of the people of his time did, you would be outraged. You would probably stop following him because he is breaking all of the commandments. He is blowing up their cultural norms. But Jesus isn't talking about that. He's saying, if you are still clinging to something, why did Lot's wife get turned into a pillar of salt? Because she was looking back. It didn't mean that she just looked back and God killed her for that. It meant that she was pining for the old, the comforts of home that she knew, even in a corrupt society, even where her spiritual liberation lay elsewhere, still pining for those things. Just like the Israelites, as they were being led by Moses out of Egypt, you know, pining for the leeks and for the squash and the things that they had there that they didn't have anymore in the desert, even though their liberation lay elsewhere. If you're looking back, how in the world can you move forward? If you are grieving over the things that you had to leave in order to have the kind of freedom that Jesus is talking about in connection, then you can't go where Jesus is going. But once again, it's not about being 
excluded. It's just that you cannot see what is right in front of you with that kind of mindset, with that kind of attitude. It's as if you won't fit in just any more than you would fit into a pair of jeans, two sizes too small. It's not going to work, right? It's the same thing here. You can't fit into the space. You won't see the space to fit into. To remember that God never excludes. God never withholds, ever. God can't if he wanted to. God is love. God is inclusion. God is unity and community. You know, gold can't be any color but gold (laughs) because that's what color gold is. All the way down to the periodic table of the elements. It's gold because it's gold. God is God because he's God. God is love because he's God and who he is. He can't withhold that. You can go stand in the shade, but as soon as you come into proximity, there it is. God does not withhold. God does not exclude. We just can't see this. We can't conceive of it and of kingdom, the quality of life of kingdom, until we change everything. And when everything changes, everything that we say changes. The way we express ourselves changes. The way we experience things changes. I wanted to read you some quotes from some contemplatives. And just listen for a second. You can even close your eyes and just listen. They're going to go by kind of fast, but just hear the words and see if they make sense to you. From the poet Rumi, who was a mystic and a contemplative in the Sufi tradition, you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the mighty ocean in the drop. What you seek is seeking you. The wound is the place where the light enters you. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Run from what's comfortable. Forget safety. Live where you fear to live. Destroy your reputation. Be notorious. I have tried prudent planning long enough. From now on, I'll be mad. There was a great line from a movie I was just watching. It says, I aim to misbehave. (laughs) Thought, Thought of that when I was thinking of this line here. From now on, I'll be mad. What have I ever lost by dying? There is a voice that doesn't use words. Listen. And a very famous one. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Doesn't it remind you of Jesus three times going back to his friends when he was praying in the garden? Stay awake with me. Don't go back to sleep. There you are again. Wake up. Don't go back to sleep. There's that, oh, that, that plea to wake up from Ram Das. The next message you need is always right where you are. Julian of Norwich, all shall be well. 
and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Angelus Silesius, if God stopped thinking of me for just an instant, he would cease to exist. Think about that. If God stopped thinking of me for just an instant, he would cease to exist. He would cease being who he is. What is life? It is a flash of a firefly in the night. It is a breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is as the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. That's Crowfoot, Blackfoot tribal chief. From Augustine, God loves each of us as if there were one of us. John Cassian, I love this one. Prayer is an astonished gaze at God's ungraspable nature. Oh, is that good? Prayer is an astonished gaze at God's ungraspable nature. And Richard Rohr follows right up with this. Prayer is a total life stance. It is a way of being present in the world in which we are present to the presence in all things. In a certain sense, you either pray always or almost always, or you do not pray at all. Teresa of Avila, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Brennan Manning. Silent solitude makes true speech possible and personal. If I am not in touch with my own belovedness, then I cannot touch the sacredness of others. If I am estranged from myself, I am likewise a stranger to others. Eddie Hilsom, who died in the Holocaust, sometimes the most important thing in a whole day is the rest we take between two deep breaths or the turning inwards in prayer for five short minutes. And finally, Catherine of Siena, the soul is in God, and God is in the soul, just as the fish is in the sea, and the sea is in the fish. <laughs> ah, what makes people say such things? Think about that. Of all the things you heard, I know they went by fast. But what makes people say such things? To choose such language, to choose such imagery. How did they even in the world come up with some of the things that they said? Would you say such things? Do such things come to your mind? And like this? Like Jesus sayings that are also so opaque, so counterintuitive, that seems so wrong on the face of it? Did even much of this make any sense to you? <laughs> it didn't to me, I'll tell you. When I first started reading contemplative writings, it didn't make any sense at all. I had the sense as I was reading contemplative writings for the first time, have you ever seen a picture of Albert Einstein standing in front of his blackboard? You know, Einstein's blackboard is a really famous thing. It's in a museum in England someplace, I think. But you've seen these before. Blackboards covered with mathematical formula, just dense. I mean, there's more chalk than there is blackboard. Just there's a picture of, of Einstein in front of his blackboard with it. Reading contemplative writing was like looking at Einstein's blackboard 
what the heck is all of that? Just gobbledygook, just symbols all over the place, just dense, opaque, a wall, nothing that I could even fathom to comprehend. Just surface. And this is what contemplative writing was like to me. I couldn't understand it. They had seen something that I had not seen and were expressing it in a way that I could not conceive, comprehend, even get close to. They had learned to answer life's questions in a completely different way. And I couldn't join in that experience. Nothing in me had changed enough for me to be able to see what they'd seen and even understand the things that they were trying to convey. Just Einstein's blackboard. That's as far as it could go with me. There's a sleeper movie, and I, I know I've talked about this one before. It's called Jackie, and it's about Jacqueline Onassis. I know Onassis, Jacqueline Kennedy, right after the assassination of her husband, as she's grieving and trying to get through it. And there's a series of conversations she has with the priest who is counseling her. And the last session, they're sitting there, and he finally looks at her, and he says, there is a time in man's search for meaning where one comes to the horrible realization that there are no answers. And when you come to that horrible realization, you either accept it or you kill yourself, or you simply stop searching. See, I think if we're going to really follow Jesus, we're going to have to come to that place because our small minds want answers. Our small mind wants certainty. Our small minds want to be able to control our circumstances. That's the only way that we're going to feel safe. It's the only way that we're going to push back the fear. But if we are clinging to that in any way, shape, or form, that need to control, that need to understand, that need to be certain, I'm right, everyone else is wrong, then that's as far as we go. We're hitting that glass ceiling. There is nowhere else we can go with Jesus beyond that. But when we finally get to the point where we realize there are no answers, not in the way that we're looking for them, then we can go forward to let go of the certainty. And there's a critical difference here. Conviction and certainty are not the same thing. You can have conviction in your uncertainty. We can be absolutely convinced of something that we can't prove, and that can't be proven to us. And that's another distinction that we need to make. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John 3, the famous encounter, he comes to Jesus by night, he comes to Jesus stealthily. But he comes to Jesus bringing his old mind. The mind with which he has been processing things all his life. The mind with which he understands everything that he understands about his God, about his faith, about the workings of the nation of Israel. And to his credit, he sees something in Jesus that is different. He sees something in Jesus that is compelling, that's intriguing. But it's incomprehensible to him. It's like Einstein's blackboard. He sees something going on here. He has, he has enough going on, enough of his sincerity and enough of his honesty to value and see that there's something going on in Jesus, but he can't get to it. He can't figure it out. But he's dedicated enough to seek Jesus out, even though he does it under cover of night, but he's bringing his old mind. And that old mind will not let him see what Jesus is talking about. Take a look at John 3, starting right at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, 
a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Einstein's blackboard thrown right up in front of his face because Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He's taking Jesus literally. The only way that he can. The only way the old mind, the small self, is going to allow information like that to pass through has got to be literalized. He can't see where Jesus is going. And so Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answers and says, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? He's amazed. Einstein's blackboard, he just keeps banging up against it. Here's Jesus layering image after image, just piling image after image. You know, when I was a school teacher, middle school teacher, way back in another lifetime, I'd lay out a concept to the class, and the usual kids, you see the light bulbs going over their heads. You know, you'd see their face. They got it. And so I'd say it another way, a few more light bulbs, and another way. I'd say it as many times as I could to try to get it across before I finally had to move on and just leave the ones with the switched-off lights. What could I do? You know, I had to keep moving with the class, but I would try so hard to say things different ways to try to get it across. Jesus is doing the same thing here, trying to bring Nicodemus along, trying to get the light bulb going on over his head. You got to be born again. You got to have brand new eyes to be able to see. Nicodemus is lost. He's staring at the blackboard. How can a man be born again when he's old? Then he tries water and spirit. Born of water, born physically into the world. Born of spirit, a complete transformation, a change of everything. The flesh is flesh. It's always going to yield that. Like breeds like. If you keep thinking with that little mind, that's all you're going to get. But if you switch over into the spirit cart, then you can start to move in new directions. The wind blows. You can't see it, but you can see its effect. You can hear it, but you can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. And he's saying to be born of spirit is the same thing. Let go of trying to understand these things. Just live for the effect. Let the wind blow you. Let the Spirit take you places that you don't know where you're going. It doesn't matter. If you're present to it, it will teach you. But teach you in conviction, not in certainty. If you're looking for certainty, you will never go where the Spirit is going. You can't. You're just going to be sitting there in gale-forced wind, but you're not going to be moving. Image after image, trying to get Nicodemus to see what's really at issue, what's really going on. Now, what is the effect of spirit? What is that Jesus is trying to get at? Nicodemus comes to him. We come to him. You came here today. You came here by camera. You came here on foot. What is it that you're searching for? What is it that you would ask of Jesus if he were right in front of you? 
And what is it that Jesus would say to you? He'd start to break down in you that which he can perceive you're still clinging to, that which is still blocking you. What is the effective spirit that Jesus is trying to get all of us to be able to see? How do we know if we're reborn in spirit? How do we know? One way is that you have stopped searching for rational answers. You have stopped trying to control everything, every factoid. You have stopped trying to defend every certainty, either your own personally, those of your tribe, those of your church. You just let it go. You've relaxed your grip. And you started to realize that spirit cannot be encountered in that direction. If you ask Jesus a question along those lines, he's not going to answer it. He's going to cut you off. He's going to ask you a different question, one that starts to move you in a new direction. He's going to tell you a story that will take your mind in a completely different way. To realize that spirit can't be encountered in this particular direction with a small mind, understanding, to start to embrace unknowing, uncertainty. And I think the second and most important one, maybe, they're both important, but the second one is just important, is to graduate from mere obedience. If there is anything in us that's still looking at our relationship with our God as legal, as bound in law, as some kind of quid pro quo, that if we do this, then God will reward us with that. If we don't do this, God will withhold that. As long as there's anything legal in us standing between us and the pure presence of our God, we're cooked. We cannot go any further to let go of law, to let go of obligation, to let go of a sense of duty in the face of just being connected so that these things flow out of you the law of liberty of James, it's flowing out of you, rather than something that you're trying to grind out. As long as we are thinking legally, we are thinking with the old mind. We are unreborn. We are untransformed. And we can't go any further than that. What do we have to change in order to follow Jesus? What do we have to change in order to enter this kingdom that he's talking about that defines his entire ministry? Only one thing. Everything. But everything can be broken down into two things. And it's a change of mind, and it's a change of habit. Change of mind, change of habit. Now, it's kind of a horse and and cart thing. Horse and cart thing. Which came first? Change your mind, change your habit. You know, which comes first? Or maybe you can even think of it as a catch-22. I mean, I can't enter kingdom until I change everything. But can I really change everything before I've started to see something of kingdom, something of the movement of spirit? And the truth of the matter is that both the change of mind and the change of habit, the change of the way we think and the change of the way that we habitually live and act, the things that we do, the whole habitus, this, this way of perceiving and living life. They work together, mind and habit, to move us forward to one goal. And of course, what is that goal? We've been talking about it for weeks. It's presence. To move toward presence, to start to experience full presence is the beginning of everything. Because it's only spending time in presence that we can start to change everything. Because only presence 
takes us out of our minds. And we have to be out of our minds in order to experience spirit. Jesus' family literally said he was beside himself, which was a way of saying that he had lost his senses, that he was out of his mind. You know, in a way they were right. Jesus was out of his mind. He moved outside of, he transcended the small self, the egoic mind, the one that thinks in this particular way, so that he could be one with his father's mind. And his family looked at that and thought he was crazy. They were embarrassed by that because the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. But Jesus didn't have a place where he could just relax because he had gone to a place that was so alien to the people around him that it was difficult for them to relate. They couldn't see it in him. Even his own friends, his followers, the closest ones, the ones that couldn't stay awake with him for just an hour while he was praying, were still jockeying for places of power, still using their small minds right up to the crucifixion. And after hiding and worrying and living in their small minds until the moment of Pentecost when it broke through to them, exactly what he was talking about. Didn't come overnight, and it won't come overnight for us either. And it's presence that will take us there. Ultimately, it is always presence that will take us where we want to go. The more we try to understand what Jesus is talking about is going to reinforce that which blocks our view of what Jesus is trying to get across to us because we're continuing to use that tool, that mechanism, that organ that is the limiting factor. And the more that we're just going to see Einstein's blackboard when we hear the things of spirit to us. But if we can change our minds just enough to dedicate ourselves to a change of habit, a way of living this practice of prayer that will finally finish the job of changing our minds. They work together. Act your way into right living and live your way into right thinking. I mean, I'm saying that wrong too. We've talked about this before, but in terms of presence, that's what we're after. Can we get enough of the paradigm of what Jesus is talking about that limits the risk and allows us to practice the presence that will then change the everything that we need so that we will start to see with the Father's eyes. We'll start to see what Jesus sees. That's it. In that relaxed grip, we will start to realize there are no answers the way we have always compulsively looked for answers. And the mind will lose its hold on us and we will be able to move out in a new way. In that relaxed grip, we are born into a new way of answering life's questions. And then when you express your answers to someone else, it'll be like Einstein's blackboard to them, unless they have begun the same process and are able to see what you have been seeing. This is it. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. Can we change enough of our minds to dedicate ourselves to a change of habit that will bring the presence that will finish the job of changing everything in us so we can see with the Father's eyes. And since we've been talking about the how, how do we do this? That's going to be the next focus. How do we do this specifically? But everything hinges on this point. Can we begin the process of changing everything 
so that we can see what Jesus sees. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's easiest for us to think that, you know, yeah, you're not asking much, you're just asking everything. And that's difficult for us. But help us to see that the changing of everything is not going to be a grind when we are on your way, on your path. It's going to be as easy as falling back into a swimming pool, as easy as just letting go our grip and falling into another's embrace. Help us to realize that that really is the path. The subtraction instead of the addition, the letting go instead of the compulsively acquiring. Father, thank you for everything that you've shown us. Help us to be able to see it with new eyes, with new ears, so that we really can start to experience the presence that will take us to you. Thank you for your constancy once again and your love, Lord. And we can only return it because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's all stand. One final prayer.